It's good to see you guys. Congratulations. You made it on this early and cold Sunday morning. It's worth it. God is worth it. Um, so thank you for being here with us to worship God together. And um, my name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing in James. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. James is kind of wearing on me because it's so clear and so practical. So it's super easy to understand, but really hard to do, really hard to put into practice. And so I'm feeling that. I don't know if you guys are, but I'm sure you probably are to some extent. It's like, this is what a Christian looks like? Oh, no, I've got some work to do. And I think that that is probably going to be true for the rest of our lives. There's never going to be a point where it's like, okay, now we've arrived and like I can just rest in being a Christian. Like that is actually what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be and feel like. And until that time, we're encouraged in Scripture to endure and to persevere, to run the race that's set before us. And so persevere in that. Don't, don't run it like a sprint. So don't like try and do everything all at once, but actually thoughtfully engage with the Word and see where kind of the Spirit is leading you to grow and to push into. This morning, we're going to be looking at wisdom, and um, anybody think they have wisdom? I was thinking about our church, and I'm like, I don't know if our church really is like, yeah, I have wisdom. I'm wise. I'm super wise. Please ask me about how to do life, and I can tell you a thing or two. Um, and I understand that, but I also think that maybe that could be a problem, that maybe... Um, we're afraid of what it means to be wise. Or we have a misconception about what that actually means and what that actually looks like. Maybe we're waiting like, well, if I'm just a little bit older, then I'll be wise and then I'll feel more comfortable in that. Or if I get to a certain life stage or hit a mile marker or a milestone in my life, then I'll be wise. And so one of the problems with that, because I think like this too, is that all of that is centered around our wisdom, wisdom that comes from us, wisdom that comes from our experiences. So we go through certain experiences and then we think that we've accumulated wisdom and that happens as we age. And there's something to that that does happen, but James looks at wisdom from a very different perspective. And so today we're going to be in James 3 and we're going to see what it looks like to crucify our wisdom. And you'll understand more about what that means as we go through it. But James is going to show us that we need to crucify our wisdom. So you can open with me to James 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18, kind of right in the middle of the book. So please read this with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you that we are here this morning, that we get to um, meet with you, that you are here with us, and that you teach us from your word. Lord, I ask that, um, that our hearts would be opened, that our ears would hear, and that our hands and our feet would be ready to do your word this morning. So I ask that you would bring conviction to us, bring encouragement, um, bring blessing through, through your word this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we need to crucify our wisdom. We need to crucify our wisdom. That's kind of the main principle that we're going to be looking at. And to do that, we're going to look at three different kind of um, movements. First is, what's the problem with our wisdom? So if we need to crucify our wisdom, clearly there's a problem with our wisdom. Second, what's the replacement for our wisdom? If there's a problem with our wisdom, where then do we get wisdom? So what's the replacement for our wisdom? And then finally, we're going to look at the, out, we're going to look at the outcome of crucified wisdom. So what does that produce? What does it look like? Um, but before we begin, we have to really work with what is wisdom. Wisdom is one of those words that we say, but do we actually, like, how do you define it? How would you describe wisdom to somebody? It's kind of like a word that's hard to define without using the word. It's like, well, it's, you know, something that wise people have. It's like, yeah, okay, but what does that mean? And wisdom, if you look at scripture, right, we just read from Psalm 111 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And really, in scripture, what wisdom is, it's a controlling principle for living your life. And it's a controlling principle that is living your life in accord with the way God has made things. And so you're trying to kind of discern truth or how God has made things and then apply yourself to live within that truth, live within that world that he has made. And so that is kind of a very you know, broad, general understanding of what wisdom is. And so James is saying that in the churches that he's looking at, in these little, early, young churches, that he's kind of calling out a problem, that there's a type of wisdom that is taken root that isn't actually wisdom. So there's a huge problem with the wisdom that, of the churches that James is writing to, and by extension, our wisdom. So the question he starts with in verse 13 is, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he, answered his, he answers his own question. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so from the very beginning, James is kind of, spinning wisdom into a tangible, observable reality. So it's falsifiable. There's, you have the ability to test someone who claims to have wisdom. And very few people go out and say, I have wisdom, like come to me. But they will position themselves as people who have figured things out, right? And so this happens a lot of, a lot of the time in leadership. But it also just happens in kind of like the social power dynamics of a community. So it can be the leaders, but it can also just be people in the community who are kind of understanding the social dynamics and then are positioning themselves as kind of the leaders of those social dynamics. And so this was happening all over in the early church. 
And he says, okay, test that. Does that person have good conduct? Like, what does their life look like? And do they live out their works or show their works, demonstrate it, something that's visible to the world, in the meekness of wisdom? That's an essential component, the meekness of wisdom. For James, wisdom should be meek. But what he sees and what he's calling out is something very different. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth, because that is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is from below. Right? And so he's carving out a category for two types of wisdom. The first is this wisdom from below, and it's characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that reside in the heart. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts. That comes out through what you do. And the um, commonality of those two things is that they contain pride. They contain an arrogance. Here's what I mean. Bitter jealousy. So something that is bitter leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And jealousy applies to kind of like these horizontal social relationships that we have. And so imagine yourself, you you guys will have to imagine because I'm sure none of you are like this, but imagine that you have an interaction with someone Someone who, um, maybe, maybe they're just really successful. And they don't necessarily do anything wrong. They're not mean or anything like that. But just by being around them, after you're done interacting with them, like maybe you go to their house and their house is a lot nicer than yours. And it's like really pretty and everything's put in its places. And then you go back to your house and everything's broken. And you have to fix it, but you can't fix it. And you just have a bad taste in your mouth. It's bitter jealousy. The posture of of a heart that does that is that, you know what, I actually deserve what that person has. I deserve that, but I don't have it. So I yearn for it. It doesn't just have to be material either. It can be be very um, religious sounding. Right? It can be almost Christianized by words that we use. So you can interact with someone, and then you will say to other people, oh, aren't they so nice? But again, internally, there's a bitterness. And so you might then live that out by kind of like giving them the cold shoulder, or avoiding them, or gossiping, or a million different ways. And so this is characterizing this wisdom from below. And then selfish ambition, right? Maybe somebody gets more of the accolades or the attention. Maybe you hear your friends talking about how good someone is at something, and secretly you're wishing, you're yearning that they would talk that way about you. Because you have that ambition to be the center. You have that ambition to be something. Here's how these things come out in our lives. They come out in our lives in the decisions that we make every day, right? And so a common one for, you know, our church right now is people, like, thinking about, oh, buying a house, right? 
it's really hard right now to do that. Or if you have a house, daydreaming about a new house, what can that look like? And in that decision-making, your thinking is revolving around you. How can I make my life better? How can I become more appealing in my community by acquiring this? Or what about your social, your social circles? Like, do you try to kind of like position yourself either at work or maybe even in the church in such a way where you're in the in-group? Because you're wanting other people to see things about you. It's again, it's self-centered, it's self-serving. This is the principle of wisdom from below. This can be really, really sneaky too. It doesn't just like shout out, oh, like this is evil, don't do this. It can entice you. And he, he acknowledges this. J- James calls this, this is not wisdom that comes down from above in verse 15. It's earthly. So it starts out as just being earthly. Okay. Like it corresponds with basic common sense principles. Like it's earthly. It's okay. Maybe you've heard a financial guru has given you really good financial advice. It's good earthly wisdom. Like, pay off your debt. Don't borrow more than you can afford. Pay off your credit cards at the end of every month. Don't use credit cards. Good earthly advice. But you kind of ignore the fruit of it in that person's life. Are they arrogant? Do they use their wealth to lord it over other people? Do they serve the Lord with everything they have? Or is it just like, oh, I'll go ahead and section this off because I know it's good earthly advice to, or good earthly wisdom to tithe 10%, but then I see the rest of myself as my stuff. Like that 10% is God's and then I get to do what I want to do with the rest. It's earthly. From below. And there's a progression to it. It says it starts out as earthly, unspiritual, and then finally demonic. And so there's a trajectory to this wisdom. Wisdom is kind of like a path in that way. Don't imagine that the farther you walk along a certain path, that you're not getting any further away from the other path. And so this is part of how sneaky this kind of wisdom is, this false wisdom, our wisdom, human wisdom, is that it seems good to us at first. And we kind of walk along it. And we don't realize all of a sudden we've left earthly and now we're unspiritual. So we're now not even considering God. We're not even considering other principles, other priorities, other authority in our decision-making in everything that we do. It's unspiritual. We're just looking at the material consequences of it. Like, I can do something that makes a lot of sense materially, that is super wise materially, and it'd be wicked. And if you walk along that path for long enough, you see ultimately the destination of earthly wisdom, of this wisdom from below, is that it's demonic. James reveals that the path of earthly wisdom ends up in the realm of the demons. It's opposed to God. 
it reveals itself as from Satan. And it leads to disorder and to destruction. And so all of this, this is a challenge to our kind of like default way of operating, our default way of living. And so to receive it is hard because it requires kind of like, it requires the ability to sit down and to self-reflect and to think, oh, maybe I need to change the principle by which I live. Who has time for that? Like, that's a big thing to do. That, that takes a lot of time. You'll make time for it if you really believe that it leads to destruction. If you really believe that operating your life in your own wisdom, by your own kind of ability to discern good and evil, to know the truth and to apply it, if you really believe that that will lead you to destruction, you will change it. Because you'll realize that the consequences of it are terrifying. So that's the problem with our wisdom. It has us kind of at the center. It has us as the authority. It has human wisdom at the authority. And we do this in a few different ways. We can do this individually. I think that's what we all initially think about is like a person kind of living on his own. We're in an individualistic world. So they're just kind of like doing their own thing. They're not consulting with anybody. They don't really care what anybody else thinks. They're just going to win. And they do. And they might be lonely at the end of their life. They might realize they've burned all their bridges and they've used all the people around them. But this also happens in another way, a way that's a little bit more subtle in our culture, and that is we, start, we have started to live kind of by this collective human wisdom. Like, we have given a lot of credit to universities. We've given a lot of credit to worshiping people. We've given a lot of credit to loving people. And again, this is why it's so sneaky, because there's so much about that that's good and right and true from one perspective. But then when you hand over how you make decisions to those principles, you realize that they end in the same place as the individualistic person. They end in destruction. They end in selfish ambition, in bitter jealousy. They end with poisoned hearts that hate God and actually end up hating people, even though there's kind of like a claim to being able to love people. If you're doing it in your own wisdom, you cannot love people. So we need a replacement for our wisdom. We need something different. And so James, in verse 17, he makes this shift, and he says, but the wisdom from above, so in contrast to the wisdom from below, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So, First, this wisdom, wisdom from above, is pure. It's undefiled. It is not tainted or stained by sin. It has nothing to do with selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. It's completely pure. There is no imperfection within it. That is the wisdom from above. 
And that gets worked out through all of these, all of these other attributes. It's peaceable. Peaceable, again, we've kind of, this is a theme in James, so we'll just continue to remind ourselves of it. It doesn't mean absence of conflict. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. For James, and especially the Hebrew conception of peace or shalom, there's this fullness. It's a thriving. It's a society, a place, a universe where everything is working together in harmony where there's no division, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no unmet need. And so it's this fullness, it's a richness. The wisdom from above is peaceable in that way. It's gentle. It's open to reason. Open to reason, that's a translation of a word that can also be understood as submissive. So it's not like, oh, if I debate you for long enough and I see that you're right, okay, then I'll give in. It's actually a posture. You're a reasonable person in that you're submitting to the Lord. You don't have an ax to grind. You're not somebody that's hard to talk to. You're somebody who's willing and ready and eager even to submit to truth. Open to reason. Full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. So this tells us that the replacement for our wisdom, this wisdom from above, all of those things, like where do we get that? It's wisdom from above. Well, hopefully you're thinking, just like Jesus thought of himself as the fulfillment of Proverbs, he is the embodiment of wisdom. And it's beautiful, it's a beautiful play on words to say that this wisdom comes from above. Because the eternal Son of God came from above and he brought the fullness of wisdom down into earth and put it into human flesh. And really the fulfillment of that, the consummation of the wisdom that Jesus brought is fulfilled in his work on the cross. So this is where we are now understanding that our wisdom needs to be a crucified wisdom because embodied wisdom, wisdom from above, came down and was crucified. And this is hard for us. How is the cross wise? We're not the only people it's hard for. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth who's just kind of saturated and is kind of um, a very diverse community. They have both Greeks and Hebrews living within it. And he's talking about this idea of the wisdom of the cross. And he tells them, these are Christians, he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification 
and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says that that word, the word of the cross, the word of the crucified Christ, is foolish to both the Gentiles, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness because it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. It's like, why would you do that? You were the leader of this people that you came to set free. Why would you submit yourself to the cross? Why would you let them capture you? Why wouldn't you defend yourself? And for the Jews, they were looking for power. They were looking for a liberator who would come and rescue them. They were looking for signs and wonders. And the cross negated in their minds. It became a stumbling block because it's not strength, it's weakness on the cross. And you see how the cross also fulfills these things because a dying man giving his life for a people does not have mixed motivations. <laughs> Right? Like he's giving everything. All that he has is going to saving that person or those people. And so Jesus on the cross, he's not mixed. He doesn't have mixed motives. He's not doing this hoping to gain something as a result. He's doing this with one purpose. And we know by the testimony of Scripture that he is pure as he does that. He is without stain or blemish offering himself there. So he's pure. He's also peaceable because the work of the cross, it doesn't just show a demonstration of wisdom, but it actually reconciles people to God who are at enmity with him. So his death removes all of the strife that sin has created between people and God. He's just made those two things one. He's made that relationship into a relationship of shalom, of peace, of fullness, of thriving. He's gentle. He doesn't raise his hand at those who are striking him. He turns his back willingly. He's open to reason. He goes to the Lord wanting a way out in Gethsemane and eagerly obeys when he doesn't get the answer he wants. He's full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. You see, all of this demonstrated ultimately and perfectly on the cross where we see crucified wisdom and so what's the outcome of this crucified wisdom? Well, first of all, it comes to the people of God by the Spirit of God. And so even though Jesus perfectly demonstrates it, it doesn't just stay with him. Like, he, he didn't just treasure it up and hold on to it, but he passes it out. He passes it into the community, into the church, through the Spirit, working among the people, you see wisdom come and it produces a harvest of righteousness. It's a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. 
this last statement, verse 18, is, um, is kind of like a little parable or a little, just a little saying, an axiom that was used. We don't really know where it comes from. And nobody can really agree on what it means, so don't think too much about it because you'll twist yourself in knots. But here's what it looks like. I know what this means because I've thought about what this looks like here in our church. A harvest of righteousness sown in peace that makes peace by those who make peace. Because the church is a community of wisdom that thrives and multiplies that wisdom. Here's how that works. You get an example of what it looks like. You get an example of what it looks like to have crucified wisdom when you see it in the life of another person. People who are suffering through infertility and doing it for God's glory. That's happening. You see that. You see a couple going through that, and yet they're joyful. They mourn with hope. So if you ever enter into that season or that experience, you've seen that. You know what it looks like. And it's a little bit easier for you to start walking in that same path. It produces a harvest of righteousness. It multiplies. What about people who are living with a family, maybe a big family, in a small house, and they could move somewhere else and have about 17 bedrooms for the price of their three-bedroom house. And they've got kids coming out of the windows. But they're choosing because they feel God's calling to stay and to remain. Man, that's hard. How do you do that? How do you do that in our culture, in this city? There's trailblazers in our church that are doing that and then the rest of us get to see that. We get to witness it. And we say, oh, it's possible. We can do that too. We know what it looks like. It's possible to walk in the, those steps. What about parents who are discipling a difficult child with patience and correction? Seems impossible. But then you see somebody else doing it. And you're like, I know what that looks like now. I can do it too. It's a harvest of righteousness. What about somebody who's stewarding wealth for God's glory? Somebody who's just really, really wealthy, but they don't ever use it to serve themselves. They're generous, and you experience their generosity. You see them as they are being gener generous with other people, and now you know how to do that too. You know how to live for other people for the glory of God when you look at them. What about people who are worshiping God in unwanted singleness? People who are forgiving someone who deeply wounded them. All of these different ways, and there's a million of them, but these are ways where you, the wisdom from below isn't going to cut it. It's not going to produce these types of behaviors because it doesn't make sense unless you have this paradigm of the cross doesn't make sense unless you see the things of God putting shame to the things of man. And unless you experience the peace, the shalom, the flourishing of that community. Because that's what it creates. It creates a completely different society 
one where you get to experience what it feels like to see God's blessing lived out in everyday life, not just materially, but spiritually. And that's happening here. So persevere in that. Continue to push into that. And open yourself up. Where else does your wisdom need to be crucified? Where else do you need to go to the cross for wisdom? When you go there, you'll meet Jesus. And when you meet Jesus on the cross, you won't have selfish ambition. You won't have bitter jealousy. You'll have humility. You'll have a meekness of wisdom. So a community that lives with wisdom from the cross, it looks like and it feels more like Jesus. And it becomes a witness to a dying world. It becomes a witness to the rest of the world. And it becomes a harbor and kind of a greenhouse for the church. And it produces this harvest of righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. So continue to crucify your wisdom Get your wisdom from the cross and always go there for it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you don't leave this up to us. You don't leave um, wisdom as some type of journey or discovery that we have to do on our own. I think that's how we think sometimes. But instead, God, you've given us your son. You've given us your spirit, you've given us the church where we get to interact with you, where you get to experience this firsthand and that you meet us there and you show us what it means to be truly wise and it means to follow Jesus. And so God, I ask for help as we do that. This is hard, this is overwhelming, it's everything. And yet, Lord, you give us the grace of doing it with each other of doing it not of our own strength, but of the strength of the Spirit, of your strength. So Lord, I ask for myself, for this church, that we would continue to be filled with that Spirit, and that you would make us wise with the wisdom of the cross. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.